chapter 22. We will continue our study through the, the Gospel of Luke. And just keep in mind that if there are any of the messages that you have not been able to keep up with or were not here, uh, we strive to put those messages on our website at cbcws.org, uh, which is, again, just initials of Cornerstone Baptist Church, Winston-Salem. Uh, and you can always go back and even if you were here and you would like to go back and review the messages, we try to do those and it will keep you engaged with the study. If we've been working through the gospel together, even though there's been uh, at least four of us that have been preaching through together uh, with that, we're thankful that the Holy Spirit who inspired the word is the same one who teaches us regardless of, of who he uses to speak on a particular Sunday. But anyway, as we, um, as Pastor Charlie used the text, uh, much of it from last Sunday uh, regarding Christ in the garden, uh, as well as the foretelling of Peter uh, being sifted by Satan. Uh, we will continue uh, through chapter 22. We'll begin our, our study today in verse 47. We'll be talking primarily about three individuals. Most of the time we focus on two uh, we have a tendency sometimes to forget that Christ is in the middle of all of this, uh, but we focus when we come to this passage of scripture uh, on Judas and Peter, uh, two individuals that have brought to some degree some shame upon uh, the following of Christ. Kind of reminded me of an article that you may have also seen over the past week uh, where there's over, uh, uh, a 100 plus million dollar campaign uh to seek to fix Jesus's brand from follower damage. There's 100, over $100 million uh, in a Christian advertising campaign that has been blanketing cities across the United States and online with organizers claiming to redeem Jesus's brand from damage allegedly inflicted by some of his followers. Branded, he gets us, the campaign is described as an effort to draw skeptics and cultural Christians together in common calls to free the story of Jesus from hypocrites and extremists, especially those who say one thing and then do another. The campaign states it's not affiliated with any church or denomination, which is good news, because any of us would like to join does not have to you know, agree to a statement of faith or any particular doctrines in which they would hold forth as to what Jesus there referring to trying to redeem from those of us who are extremists and those of us who are hypocrites and tainting Jesus's brand. Interesting. That even a fallen world, as, as sick as our culture is, we're so bent on making sure we eliminate all the issues. And uh, perhaps maybe, and this would be my little jab for those of you who are on social media. For those of you who are on social media, you probably recall that there's many times in which you edit everything that you publish because you are going to make sure that no one sees any of the flaws unless they're funny. And even then, that's to demonstrate something positive because that's just what we do. Even as sinful and as sick as we are as a culture, we, we seek to make, keep from publishing those things which would embarrass us, even in a world in which we've lost the definition of shame. We seek to present that which is problem-free. And we wonder why we live in a world which is so depressed. 
Why there are so many anxious people in the world trying to live up to a standard that we as sinners just can't live up to on our own. And so we wonder when we think of individuals like Judas or Peter, two men who were called directly by Jesus Christ to follow him. Why would God do such a thing? It's interesting that God's word is so unique that its main characters, and even those who we refer to as heroes, are utterly flawed. John MacArthur helps us in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, puts it this way, it is significant that scripture doesn't cover the disciples' defects. The point is not to portray them as super holy luminaries or to elevate them above mere mortals if that were the aim, there would be no reason to record their character flaws. But instead of whitewashing the blemishes, Scripture seems to make a great deal of their human weaknesses. It's a brilliant reminder that our faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, God does not shudder or back away from using defected people in his plan. Rather, he actually uses them as examples for those of us who share in their utter imperfection. Don't forget the words of Paul to Timothy in his first letter. As he was introducing the letter, he says that this word is something that is faithful, something that's worth you considering, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, that I'm foremost. But Paul says he found mercy for this reason, that as the foremost or as the chief of sinners, that Jesus would be able to demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to all of us who would come to know Christ as our Savior. You see, this is what God does. We even alluded to this back last week. As, as, as Tim was going through the equip hour, talking about how God uses we just why did God make them go through the wilderness? Why did we why, why did he take the hard way? Why does it just make it simple? Why does it just quickly fix issues? Pastor Scott even alluded to it last week. Even when we talk about prayer, we get frustrated sometimes, right? Because if we pray like Jesus asks us to pray, then why don't we have simple problem-free lives? Well, we don't have to look much further than Jesus' ministry in and of itself. Remember when the disciples in Christ were going and they found a blind man. And the question was, well, Jesus, is this guy blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Well, what was Jesus' response? It was neither. This man was born blind for the glory of God because I'm going to heal him. Similarly, when you think about Lazarus, one that Jesus loved. Word had been sent forth from Mary and Martha, his sisters, to Christ saying, Lazarus is about to die. You need to come quickly and help. And Jesus intentionally delayed for four days. Why? Because he didn't love him? Because he didn't want Lazarus to, to, to die? But why? Because he wanted to show God's glory in raising him from the dead. You see, these are, while we can think of these examples, still make it very difficult, but we have, we're reminded even of Job's words 
After his ordeal in chapter 42, Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Similarly, Paul talks to us in Romans chapter 11, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God, of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So we scratch our heads from time to time and think, how does someone like Judas or Peter have anything to do with the plan of God? But yet we read these reminders from Scripture and we see these examples from Scripture to understand that's exactly what God is up to. He uses these things to encourage us in ways that we would not set forth ourselves. We would not plan salvation. It would require a perfect, holy, righteous God to suffer and to die for our sin. We would not choose to go through the sufferings of this world knowing that one day they would not be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us when Christ returns. And Jesus was not distracted by these types of things either. He was focused on the ministry that God the Father had provided for him to accomplish. Luke chapter 9 reminded that Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now we might not use that phraseology very often, but Jesus used it here. And the only time that we find it in the Gospels. But let this sink into your ears. In other words, intentionally put this where you will hear it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is in chapter 9. We're in chapter 22. Jesus never deterred from that which he knew to be God's will. And he wanted to make sure that those who were listening to him teach, let that sink into their ears. Let it remain there and think about this thing, what? That the Son of Man, that Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Why? To die. Why would he die? For our sins. And from this point on, Jesus on multiple occasions reminded his disciples of that very mission. And he wasn't going to be deterred. So we come to the passage of Scripture in verse 47 today, where we focus on the fact that the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, as we read in verse 22. In verse 47, we read, while he was still speaking. Now, this is speaking to his disciples at, in the garden. There came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Remembering those words from verse 22, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man. 
by whom he is betrayed. And this is Judas. Fulfilling what the psalmist wrote for us in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Again, John MacArthur helps us with understanding the person of Judas. And the New Testament tells us plenty about him enough to accomplish two things. I think these are two really important things for us to take note of. The first, the life of Judas reminds us that it is possible to be near Christ as Luke indicates in verse 47, he was one of the 12. It is possible to be near Christ and associate with Christ closely, but superficially, and yet become utterly hardened in sin. For me, this is one of the scariest passages in Scripture is to know that a man can live with Christ intimately for about three years as an adult. Hear him teach as no one spoke with such authority to see him do wonders in which had never been done before by the power of God in changing people's lives. To see the compassion that was lived out to see the holy anger that was demonstrated. To be that close. To have heard the sermons over and over again in the teaching, in the synagogues, over and over again, to probably be able to quote them by memory. Be that close. Yet become utterly hardened in sin. It makes me think of just how many people are there that grew up just like I did. Going to church every week. Better, going to church at least three times a week. Going to Sunday school, going to vacation Bible school, hearing over and over and over the narratives that we teach that Judas was personally an audience of. Yet be so far and be utterly hardened in their sin. The second thing, as MacArthur continues, Judas reminds us that no matter how sinful a person may be, no matter what treachery he or she may attempt against God, the purpose of God cannot be thwarted. Even the worst act of treachery works towards the fulfillment of the divine plan. God's sovereign plan cannot be overthrown even by the most cunning schemes of those who hate him. We don't know exactly to what degree Judas really wanted to just let Jesus have it. We don't know how personal it got. We, we don't have revelation in God's word to tell us exactly what the personal intent of trying to just utterly destroy Jesus was in Judas's life. But it was sufficient for him to sell his soul for a bag of silver. It was enough to cost him his soul. 
And while we know that the world in which we live, there are many others who make it very clear that their intentions are much more serious than what Judas may have ever had in mind. Because at least in Judas's life, the other gospel teaches us that at least at the end of his life, he regretted what he did to the point where he committed suicide. There are many in the world today that mock and scorn the name of Jesus Christ such that they cannot obliterate, obliterate it sufficiently. But rest assured, no matter how treacherous the attempts are, they are in actuality working in conjunction with God's plan and will never be able to thwart God's plan. God is sovereign. And even though Judas seemed to be the one who was going to ruin it all for those who were following after Christ, it was simply part of God's plan. And it was going to be a part of a plan that would see its fulfillment in the salvation of many. So Judas's betrayal, even though he was going to kiss Christ, the means of affection, a means of respect towards a teacher, Jesus wasn't distracted. He even asked, Judas, are you, are you serious? Are you, are you really going to betray me with a kiss? Are you really going to try to make everybody think that you and I are okay? Jesus was not deterred. But not only that, there's a disciple's unfitting defense. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, you know, all the other disciples were looking around and, and noticed that something's getting ready to go down pretty badly here. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They said, well, that sounds kind of extreme, but you have to remember, it wasn't that long ago that Jesus had just said, now, when I sent you out the first time, you, you left with nothing and everything was okay, right? But I'm telling you, there's coming a time very soon in which you're not only going to need a sword, but if you don't have one, you need to sell your coat so that you can buy one. And, the, and some of the disciples were like, Maybe he meant right now. And one of them, we know this from John's gospel, that it was Peter, but Luke just simply says, but one of the disciples struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. New American, American Standard Translation actually inserts, stop. No more of this. And touched his ear and healed him. And Luke presents this as something that could have distracted Christ, could have said, well, you know what? I actually prayed to the Father. If there's any way that the cup could be removed, perhaps maybe this is the way the Father's answering the prayer, that there's actually got these guys who have got some gumption enough. They're actually going to start fighting for me. They're here to protect me. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew what the plan was. Jesus was not deterred by the fact that there were disciples who were willing to even give their life as Peter had publicly demonstrated to everybody there in the garden that he was willing to do. But as Matthew records, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword 
will perish by the sword. This was not a time for the disciples to die. This was not. This is not the time for trying to establish a kingdom with force physically. Now we also have to be careful that this is not the foundations for abandoning self-defense, nor is it an opportunity for us to forsake civil justice via the sword. The kingdom's not going to be one with the sword, even though there were, have been many over the centuries of church history in which they have tried to conquer the world for Christ with the sword. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And even as believers today, we must recognize that physical force is not the way of the kingdom. As Paul reminds us as believers, we need to finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So when it comes to the ministry of Christ and when it comes to the building up of the kingdom, it is not through physical force, it is through the power of God. And Jesus is not deterred, even though he could have taken this out and saying, you know what, okay guys, have at it. I've been waiting for you to finally put up, you know, put, you know, put up a defense for me. I've been finally waiting for you to take up for me when they came to me with all these uh, schemes and all these different ways of trying to throw me over the cliff and take my life. But no. He understood what the ministry was all about. And then thirdly here in verse 52 and 53, then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as, as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus, even in facing what he was going to face for the next 24 hours, is still able to chat. Oh, so, so now, even though you've had all these opportunities for me to be out in public, for me to be easily arrested, for you to be able to make charges against me, now, when everybody else is asleep, you sneak out with your clubs and your pitchforks and your, your torches like I'm Frankenstein or something, and you're going to come out and get me when no one else is looking? Are you guys serious? Again, he understood what was about to take place. He understood that this was their hour. This was their time. And for the next 24 hours, they would have their way with Christ. The greatest injustice that could ever have been imagined or ever will be took place at their time. But as one commentary put it, Jesus amazingly, with his amazing majesty flashed for a moment. As he spoke to Judas, a stinging rebuke to Peter with a command and instruction 
and to, a, to the arresting party in righteous protest. He understood what was going on. He understood it was all according to the divine counsel of God. He understood that God, as he himself, the second person of that triune God, is sovereign and that his ways will be accomplished according to his will. Jesus is concentrated on his mission. He was going out, the Son of Man, as it had been determined. But we come to Peter. As the story shifts, having arrested him in verse 54, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now it's inevitable at this point, if not already before, that we will start uh, making the comparison between Judas and Peter. That we'll start considering the one whom Satan entered, Judas, and the one whom Satan is sifting, Peter. And while Luke doesn't provide any description for Judas's exit, he provides this incredible account of Peter's encounter. And the first thing that we notice is that Peter is still following Jesus. He said, wait a minute, I know the rest of the story. That's not the way it goes. Well, actually, he's still following. It says it right here. He followed at a distance. This is the same term. As a matter of fact, this term is only used four times in the New Testament. Three times Luke uses it. The first time he uses it in verse 5, speaking of those who saw Christ walking on the water, Peter saying, hey, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything in what? They followed him. It's a word that's going to be used later of the women who when they saw Simon the Cyrene helping Christ carry his cross on the way to the mount where he would die, there and there followed him, a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So this, this term that Luke uses to speak of Peter following even at a distance is, it, is, it, is one that reflects a following that is unobstructed. He's not just happening to go in, you know, well, they're, they're arresting Christ. It just happens to be on my, my way back to my house. Well, it's its own way back by the market. I needed to pick up something before I go home anyway. No, it was that there was an intention. There was a dedicated following. Now you say, well, that's crazy because again, I know the rest of the story. But Peter, the one who so boldly told Jesus that he would be glad to walk with him wherever he went, is still curious. He's still interested in what's happening to Christ. Now you don't see this about Judas. Judas got his money and ran. Peter there was still something that I got to see what happens. Now, again, he wasn't wielding his sword any longer. He wasn't trying to pick a fight, but he was following. 
nonetheless. But that brings us to what we all know happens in verse 56 and following. Then the servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't enough that the darkness could sort of keep people from seeing him for who he really was. But it was like, as I grew up, even as an older person enjoying watching Hogan's Heroes, whether you know that program or not, you know, when they were trying to create havoc for the Nazis, uh, they would often dress up like as if they were part of, uh, as SS officers, that they were, you know, part of, you know, the Gestapo. And they would interact with them. And even as a young person, I was like, why aren't they speaking English? How do they get away with that? Even though they're trying to make it sound like they're speaking English as a German person would speak it, that, that's not right. I mean, that would be easily detected, right? But they never were. None of the Germans ever picked up on the fact that these people are speaking English, that they couldn't be who they were trying to portray themselves as being. Peter didn't have that luxury. Peter could say all he wanted to. I've never known this man. His, even his accent gave him away. They picked him out of the crowd. The public witness and his Galilean exit betrayed him. And immediately... Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Why did the rooster crow when it's not even close to being sunrise? If our roosters crow at two o'clock in the morning, something's probably going on, and they won't be crowing very much longer, one way or the other. But why did they why did they crow? Why did this rooster crow after three times? Well, because Jesus said so, and, and, and Peter remembers exactly. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now you have to remember, Peter's in the courtyard with all these other people. And the, the high priest's house would have been built in a square around this courtyard where everybody else was seat was, was sitting around the fire. And there would be rooms and all, all around in the, in the house. And in one of these rooms would be the place where Jesus was being, had been arrested and taken for questioning. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Have you ever had that feeling? Not, certainly not to this degree. 
Have you ever had that feeling where you said that you were going to do something and then you were caught not doing it and then you, you just wish that person was not, was not even there and if they were there that they wouldn't even look at you? Husbands, have you ever told your wife that you were going to fix something a certain way and she knew that there was no possible way for anybody to do that, including you? And you not only did not fix it, but you probably made the problem worse. If you have, please tell me about it because I've never done anything like that. Uh, but, uh, but I can imagine that feeling would bring you to a point of saying, I, I don't even say it. Don't, I don't want to hear anything about it. Just don't, don't even say it. But can you imagine the grief The churning of your gut that Peter felt. Being so bold. Having made such a grand confession of what he was going to do for Christ. And how he would never, def he would never deny Christ. To having done exactly as Christ said he would do, and then the lock eyes on the Savior who would save them from that very sin. Jesus turned, looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said before the rooster crows today, You'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The same term that's used of Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem about how if they would just simply have looked to him. Here Peter weeps over his action. What a way to learn that Jesus' words are trustworthy. What a way to figure out that the Word of God is true and will be fulfilled just as God intended it to be. What a way to learn that what Jesus says is true. I wonder if he remembered all the words. I don't think he did at this moment. Obvious, it's obvious that he didn't at this very moment. But you have to remember, Jesus' words wasn't just that you would deny me three times before the rooster crows. But Jesus' words also included that when you return, you restore your brethren. I believe there would come a day in which he would remember those words. It wasn't right now. Right now, he was weeping bitterly because of his betrayal of the one who loved him so. And not only was Jesus aware of this act that Peter had committed, but you know, when Jesus saw Peter in denying him, and ultimately throughout the rest of this ordeal that Jesus would go through over the next day, that Jesus was aware of every other time when Peter would fail. He was aware of every other sin that Peter would continue to commit. He would, he, would, he would know in advance that Peter would be the one who would 
fall to peer pressure among the Judaizers and the legalizers. And not stand fast with the gospel initially and need to be corrected by the Apostle Paul. He knew that Peter would be the one that just after a week of seeing the resurrected Savior would go back to fishing. But Jesus didn't take this opportunity to leave and walk out to the courtyard and say, Peter, I told you so. And guess what? Let me tell you how else you're going to fail. Because Jesus was committed to that which was his to do as it had been determined. Let me ask you a question this morning. To whom do you relate? Hopefully, to some degree, all of us can relate to Judas. That there is at least a point in our life where we can remember we knew who Jesus was. We knew facts about what Jesus did. We knew the importance of why Jesus was here. Didn't matter. We may even associate ourselves with it. We may have even identified with goodness. We may have even shared and communicated that very truth. That we were just as far from Christ than Judas in our sin. And I know all of us as believers can relate to Peter. Peter, the one who didn't run away in regret towards judgment as Judas did. But Jesus, or Peter, who would repent and turn back to Christ in mercy. Let me just share very clearly right now that mercy is still there for you today. Just as the Apostle Paul mentioned as I, as I quoted earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 1, Christ came to save sinners. And Paul, who was an example of all of us who would come to know Christ as Savior, obtained mercy. This mercy wasn't asked for. This mercy wasn't deserved. This mercy wasn't earned. This mercy was freely given by God through Christ as He would die on a cross. Not just simply to be humiliated, not just so that He could show that He was a good example, but because our sin was laid upon Him so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. By faith, when we turn from our sin, when we turn from our sinfulness, when we acknowledge who we are as an enemy of God and look only to Christ and to Christ alone and the work that He accomplished on the cross to save us, so that we might experience the mercy and the grace that Peter, even though he wasn't experiencing and enjoying it right now, he would. All because of God's grace and mercy. 
I would encourage you today, if you can somehow relate to Judas, but not with Peter, let this be the day of salvation for you. Let this be the day when you will by faith accept, not just believe it, but accept and bring it into your life and cling to it as your only hope for salvation today. For when we do repent, we will find a much needed friend. Tim, at the beginning of Equip Hour last Sunday, played this song that we're probably all familiar with, but one that fits Peter's life, as well as all of us who know Christ. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. No one else could heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. There's not an hour that he is not near us. No night so dark, but his love can cheer us. Now did ever saint find his friend forsaken? Or sinner find that he would not take him? No, not one. See, for those who are in Christ can relate to the Peter that we find in his first letter to the church in chapter 5. Listen to these words of the one who sold out Christ for his own convenience there in the courtyard. He denied knowing him three times. This is what Peter says towards the end of his life. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that, the prop, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your care upon the Lord because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffer a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful that You still restore and that You strengthen, that You encourage. I pray that as we consider the lives of two men, both of whom were very close in proximity to Jesus, but one being spiritually infinitely away, the other being firmly held in your hand. We pray, Lord, as we consider this, that we would be encouraged by Peter's words, that we would resist, that we would be humble, 
that we would be strengthened in our faith, knowing that we have an enemy, but Lord, knowing that we have a Savior that is much greater. I pray, Lord, now that as we take just a moment to reflect upon your word and as we continue to prepare ourselves for uh, leaving this place for a, a life of ministry, that your work would be done, that you would, that you would mold us and shape us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might glorify him and enjoy you forever. And we ask this in Christ's name.